Well, good evening. Good to see you tonight. It's good to be in Revelation again. I enjoy uh, Wednesday nights coming and studying God's Word with you and just love the research and, and digging into the book, and we're glad that you're here. I want us to go ahead and get started. We have a lot to cover in chapter 5. Chapter 5 is all about Jesus. It is an awesome chapter. So looking forward to getting into that tonight. So if you have your Bible or your device, turn to the fifth chapter of Revelation. I'll be in the ESV, and we are glad that you're here. Good to see all of you. Those of you joining us by live stream as well, we have a lot of you doing that. A lot of people even listen past Wednesday nights and watch this on Thursdays or Fridays or Saturdays. We're glad whenever you can join us that you're joining us, and so welcome to you tonight as well. Let's have a word of prayer, and we'll get started. Father, we thank you tonight for Jesus and how he's so clearly shown in Revelation chapter 5. And I pray tonight, God, you would teach us what you want us to know from this powerful chapter. God, we thank you for all the book of Revelation. And I just pray every Wednesday night as we gather, whether it's here live or whether it's virtually or however it may be, God, I just pray the Holy Spirit of God would be our teacher. Show us what you want us to know. And may, Father, we follow you as believers and trust in you in a greater way. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. Well, again, if the notes, if you have the notes, uh, you can get those. If you don't have the notes, you can get them on our website. Go to media, and then you can click on Wednesday night notes, and they'll come up that I'll be teaching on. Or as you walk in the back doors, you can scan your phone on the QR code out there, and they'll come up immediately on your phone. Just scan it as you walk in. But anyway, you can have the notes uh, as we look at our passage each Wednesday night. Well, letter A, first of all, let's recap. We'll do it quickly because we got a lot to get into in Revelation chapter 5. But first of all, as far as the background goes, want to remind you again uh, about the book. The word Revelation, as you know, means apocalypse, or it's the word apocalypsis in Greek. We get the word apocalypse. It means to unveil something that has previously been hidden. So Revelation is an unveiling or a revealing of what has been hidden that God has kept hidden. It was originally written to the seven churches of Asia Minor, which are today Turkey. Those churches were Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So John wrote the letter to these seven churches to kind of be used as a circular letter. What they call a circular letter in those days. One church would read it, pass it on to the next church, pass it on to the next church. And it was usually, it wasn't seven different letters. It was one book that was written then to seven different churches. John wrote it, the apostle of Jesus, uh, on the island of Patmos around 90 A.D., Jesus was uh, crucified, resurrected on around 30 A.D., so it's about 60 years after that. As you know, the book of Revelation is a series of visions. More than 60 visions are in this, uh, are in this uh, uh, letter. Uh, references to the Old Testament, about 350 different references to the Old Testament. So it's a book that very much is predicated upon the, Rev the Old, Old Testament's teachings. Each of the letters to the seven churches, as you know, kind of had the, those were chapters 2 and 3, kind of had the same pattern. Jesus told every church, first of all, I know what's going on in your church. I see everything that's happening. And then he would give them a commendation, what he thought was good. He would give them a rebuke of what was bad in the church. He would exhort them things that they needed to do. And then he would give them a promise. And so each of the letters were like that in chapters 2 and 3. 
You remember some of the principles we talked about. I think these are vitally important principles of interpretation of Revelation. Number one, remember exegete, don't eisegete. Don't read into passages. Uh, it's basically uh, you're, you're uh, drawing out. Exegesis means to draw out what's there. Eisegesis is to read in. So don't read into the passages what you think or what might be. Just exegete what's there and draw it out. Secondly, remember to accept the most Literal interpretation first, uh, unless it's obviously symbolic. So uh, it, it's if something, if you're reading something, you go, well, is that literal or symbolic? If it can be literal, it is. Uh, it's only if it's obviously symbolic, uh, then that it is symbolic. And then lastly of all, just my last principle advice is, don't get caught up in all the symbols and miss Jesus. This, this is a book about Jesus and how Jesus triumphs and he, he wins and he's the victor over sin and death and evil. And so don't get caught up in all the 666 and 144,000 and all of that and miss uh, Jesus. Let's look at some methods of interpretation. We talked about those last time, if you remember. Uh, there are six of them. Remember the historical that, that, that's interpreting just basically deals with the events within the totality of history. There's the preterist, which means past, and people that interpret Revelation in the preterist believes that all of this happened in the past. None of it is for the future. It's already all happened. Then there are futurists that believe this book is nothing but the future and that everything's going to unfold in the future from this book. There are those that are the idealists. They see it as an allegory, much like Pilgrim's Progress or another kind of book, allegorical book. It's got to be more than allegory. I don't agree with that. And then there are combinations of those as well. Of course, there's a Jewish approach. They, they believe in the book of Revelation. They just believe that it's not been fulfilled yet. Not even the churches of Asia Minor were here yet. They don't think those have come into being yet. And that all of it is a book about the Jewish people and how God is going to triumph with the Jewish people. So that's the Jewish interpretation of uh, Revelation. So that's a quick summary of where we've been in five weeks and now for our sixth session, looking at Revelation chapter 5. Let's look first of all at Revelation 4, because 4 and 5 go together. Remember, 4 was last week, and if you remember, chapter 4 was a vision that John saw of heaven into the throne room, and then also after that, read chapter 5 is where he gives the scroll to Jesus, and Jesus takes the scroll. So, four and five go together. Uh, in fact, I thought about teaching them both the same Wednesday night, but there's too much to cover in each chapter. I didn't want to do that, so I just split it up into two different Wednesdays to cover it. But chapter four, remember, after the letters to the seven churches in chapters two and three, John then sees another vision. He sees a vision of a door that is open in heaven. Now, we had a question last week. Why do you need doors in heaven? You're not trying to keep people out, evil out or anything. It's a good question. Uh, and so we really don't know other than a metaphorical sense that there was a door that was open and John was invited into it. So Jesus is the one we're told has invited him. So John's in this vision out on Patmos. He sees a door open in heaven. So he goes through the door and he is transported to another vision. And he looks, and it's a huge room. And in this huge room, in the very center, is a throne. 
And this is called the throne room of heaven. And sitting on the throne is God himself. Now, what's interesting, we talked talked about last week in chapter 4 is, as you read in Revelation 4 about the dimensions of the room and how it's set up, it sounds like the Old Testament temple. So, was the Old Testament temple designed to look like the throne room of heaven? Very possible that it was. So, he looks in, sees God sitting on his throne, and immediately he sees 24 elders cast their thrones before the Lord at his feet while he's sitting on the throne. He sees seven burning lamps, and we saw last week the burning lamps were representative of Israel right before they would go into battle. They would light the light a lamp and, and, and they would go into battle. And so symbolic that what we're about to see is battles taking place. And if you look at the Revela- rest of Revelation, it is. It's one big battle after another until finally Armageddon and the last battle. So the seven burning lamps are very symbolic of John sees battles that are about to begin. So the seven burning lamps. And then he saw four living creatures come and bow down before the throne of God. He saw a lion, he saw an ox, he saw a man, and he saw an eagle. Representative of four different classes of kinds of people. And each one of those were the head of that class. The lion being the undomesticated beast. And the lion being the king of the beast. And then the ox being the strongest of the domesticated beast. Humans of those that walk the earth, him being the, uh, and, and mankind being the most intelligent of those that walk the earth. And then the eagle the, of the flying creatures, the, the greatest and grandest, most majestic of the flying birds. So all of those representative of everything God has created. So last week we ended with chapter 4, John looking at the throne room of heaven, God's on the throne, and everyone's around worshiping God. And then we come to chapter 5, something interesting happens. Now, all of a sudden, Jesus enters the throne room of heaven. Read with me, letter B, the scroll and the lamb, verses 1 through 14. John wrote, verse 1, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within And on the back, sealed with seven seals. Let me stop there for a moment. There's a lot in verse 1. John is looking at God and he sees someone come up. God has in his right hand a scroll. Why the right hand? Anytime in the Bible you see something on the right hand of God, it's authority and power. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. Uh, Right hand was always authority and power. So, he has a scroll that contains power and authority that comes from on high. He's holding it in his right hand. And there's something written on the scroll. Not just written on the inside, but written on the inside and the outside. That's odd. Usually if you have a scroll, it's going to be written on, something's written on the inside. 
But here you have it written on the inside and the outside, the front and the back, which means there's a lot of words. Now, let me tell you a little bit about scrolls in biblical times. Scrolls were read horizontally, not vertically. Writing was very narrow, in narrow columns of about three inches wide. You would hold a scroll in your left hand, you would unroll it with your right hand, and you would read. So, if this scroll contains the rest of Revelation, which some believe it does, it would be about 15 feet long. When you finished writing a scroll, you would seal it. Many forgeries back in these days. In fact, it's very common when this was the primary way of communicating. And you, let's say a king would send out a decree. If, if you wanted him to say something different, if you could somehow get into that and adjust what he wrote... There were a lot of forgeries floating around, so they somehow had to, had to have a way to prevent forgeries. So what they did was they would fasten a string around the scroll when they finished with it, and they would, they would with strings, and they would seal with wax the strings so you could tell if the wax had been broken or not. In this particular scroll, there were seven strings, each of them sealed with wax. So if you saw a document in these days that had a seal on it where the wax had not been broken, you know it's authentic. You know whoever wrote it, it's their words. In fact, uh, back in these days, and the, it was a Roman law that if you were executing a will, or if you were writing a will, because people like to change wills a lot in those days, put yourself in it. So a will was really a document that had to be genuine. They required seven different strings around a will. And here we see seven strings sealed around this document. This scroll, seven strings, of course, is also the uh, number of perfection. So the seal around a document, don't, don't miss this, the seal around the document would mean the contents are safe, the contents are protected, the contents are genuine, the contents have not been tampered with, the contents are unchangeable. Now go with me for a second. Whenever Jesus describes your salvation, he describes it as you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. I know a lot of people have asked me through the years, Pastor, can you give me a verse on security of the believer? I don't know a better one than sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Oh, well, okay, yeah, that's a good one. Give me some others. No, no, there's not a better one. It's the same picture. So, whenever you're saved, God takes your salvation and he seals it. Someone has to be greater than God to break your salvation. The devil can't. He's not powerful enough. You can't. You're not powerful enough. So, whenever you're sealed or saved, he seals you. Your salvation is safe. It's protected. It's unchangeable. It's free from tampering. That seal will not be broken until you get to heaven powerful image. 
that you're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So as you broke one of these seals, you could read what was written there. You'd read it, then you'd break another seal and read it, break another seal. You could un unroll the entire scroll. Was the scroll in Revelation 5, was this the same one Daniel was ordered to seal up in chapter 12? Some say yes. So now it's been sealed for how long? And now it's finally going to be broken. Question, what's in the seal? What's in this scroll? Well, a lot of theories from theologians. One theory is it's the Old Testament. When you break the seals, you unroll it, it's the Old Testament. Maybe. Some theologians say it's the New Testament and Old Testament both. It's, it's the entire Bible that's been sealed and protected. Maybe. Others say it's all of Revelation. Maybe. Others believe it is the title deed to planet Earth. That Jesus, the conqueror, has been given the title to this planet. I don't know where you get that from, but some believe that. Others believe it's Israel's divorce papers. Hosea said, God said he was going to be issuing divorce papers to his people. And so, some theologians believe that the Jews are left out and God is officially divorcing his people. And so, it's divorce papers. Yeah, I don't buy that, but some believe that. Most theologians believe that what's in this scroll is chapters 6 through 18 of Revelation, what we're about to read in the coming weeks. I think that has more merit to it because of what's said later. So, I believe that what's in the scroll is what is in Revelations chapters, Revelation chapter 6 through 18. And that's what we're about to find out. Now, the emphasis in chapter 5 in the scroll is not the content but the one who's worthy to open it. Don't miss it. Don't start thinking, oh, what's in there? What's in there? If you start thinking of the content, you're going to miss the one who's worthy to open it. That's what chapter 5 is about. So, look at what he says. Saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written on both sides, sealed with seven seals. Verse 2. And I saw a mighty angel. He doesn't tell us his name. Some people say Gabriel. We're not told it's Gabriel. A mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, so he's very authoritative, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? So he's crying out all across heaven, is anyone worthy to open this wax seal and read the scroll? In verse 3, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Nobody. No created being had the authority to look into the scroll, to take it, to break its seals. Humans are utterly helpless to affect our own destiny. No one was worthy. Notice he said nobody in heaven, nobody on earth, nobody under the earth. That's hell. 
Nobody in earth and hell or heaven is worthy to open the scrolls. And what did John do? He began to weep. Verse 4, and I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Why did it affect John so much? We don't know. Something, something made him weep loudly and grieve that the scroll could not be opened. So John must have known what was in there because he wanted it open so badly. Could he realize, did he realize in that moment that the redemption of all humanity was based upon who could open the scroll? Maybe. But he wept. And he was weeping. Verse 5, one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Praise God for Jesus. Somebody's worthy to redeem us. Now, this is the only place in the Bible where the phrase, the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David are added together into one person. Only place in the New Testament. One of the elders comforted John and told him, and basically it was Jesus who is the only one who has conquered death and is qualified to open the scroll and break the seven seals. Folks, in order to break the seven seals, you would either have to be God or or perfect man. And there was only one who was both. Jesus. So that's why he's the only one qualified to be your savior. The only one qualified. I have nothing against Buddha. I'm sure he was a nice man. He said some good things. He's just not qualified. He wasn't God. He wasn't perfect man. So Buddha's not it. I have nothing against Gandhi. I'm sure Gandhi was a nice man. Said some good things. He's not qualified. He's not God. He's not a perfect man. I have nothing against Muhammad. He said some good things. He's not qualified. He's not God and fully man. They're nice guys. They're just not worthy. And that's why salvation is through Jesus only. He's the only one qualified and worthy. Folks, I'm not discriminating against anybody. I know we as Christians, oh, you're exclusive. Oh, you're discriminating. No, no. I have nothing against other religions. They're just not qualified to open the scroll. Only Jesus is. You see... Heaven is not politically correct. Heaven does not care if it hurts your feelings. Heaven is not trying to be inclusive. Heaven's all about truth. And there's only one 
Call us what you want. Call heaven what you want. Call the Bible what you want. But truth is exclusive. And the truth is, there's only one qualified and only one worthy and only one way to be saved. And every other belief system and religion and faith is wrong. Call me what you want. But heaven in verse 5 shows us nobody else is qualified. And nobody else is worthy. So Jesus, he's the only one that can open the scroll and the seven seals. Verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Here's the picture. John sees the scroll and, and the angel cries out, who's worthy to open the scroll and nobody is worthy? And he begins to weep and the elder comes out, oh, it's okay, John. We found somebody. Who is it? It's the Lion of Judah. Oh, great. And he turns to see this lion. And he looks. And it's a little lamb. It's not a lion. It's a lamb. And the word that's used for lamb, they had different words for, for lamb in Greek. They had the word, the word arneon is little bitty baby lamb. And that's the word used. I look at this big lion and I see this little baby lamb. There's a lot of difference between a lion and a lamb, isn't there, by comparison? One's strong and majestic and one's gentle and meek. Jesus in his first coming is the lamb. Second coming, a lion. He combined both. He's the lamb and the lion. First coming, second coming. And John saw the lamb in the center of the angelic creation around the throne. And the central figure was this little bitty lamb. And he was standing up, ready to complete his work, bearing the marks of his death, as if he had been slain, John said, a lamb standing, as if, as if he'd been slain. He'd been slain 60 years before this, but he's talking like it's fresh. Folks, the crucifixion's always fresh, never gets old. In heaven, it never grows stale. The lamb's always freshly slain. And isn't it interesting? That John, as the representative of heaven, saw a lamb, not a lion. You see, we, we want symbols of power as nations. Or Think about sports teams. You name your sports teams, uh, uh, conjure images of ferocious beasts or birds of prey. Uh, you have the lions and the tigers and the bears and the eagles and the falcons and... You don't have the Green Bay lambs or the Dallas lambs. Okay, sometimes they play like lambs, but you don't, you don't have, you have names that are, and symbols that are majestic and nations do the same. 
why would heaven have as a representative an Arneon? But don't pity this lamb. This lamb is pretty powerful. It's seven horns, seven eyes. What does that mean? Horns are always symbolic of salvation in the Old Testament. In fact, the horns of the altar, the horns of salvation. Every time you see horns in the Old Testament, it always references salvation. They meant authority and salvation and, and power. And eyes were all seeing and all knowing. Eyes are, are symbolic of knowing everything. So you have seven number perfection. Seven, perfection of power and eyes, perfection of knowledge. So in this little lamb, you have omnipotence and omniscience, all-powerful and all-seeing. So in this little lamb, you have powerfully combined the marks of omnipotence and omniscience, attributes of God in this little lamb. Verse 7, and this little lamb went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. In verse 8, and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of of the saints. Let's stop there for a moment. That raises a lot of questions, doesn't it? So when the lamb turns to get the scroll from God, it triggers outpouring of praise from all of heaven. Four living creatures, which are the angelic realm, and 24 elders, which is the human realm, all fell down before him. And the 24 elders had harps and bowls. It's the only place in the Bible that harps are used to praise God. This is where we get the image that everybody has a harp in heaven. From this, this is the only time it's ever mentioned. So, isn't it interesting that worship is accompanied here by an instrument? Shh, don't tell the church of Christ. <laughs> There's an instrument accompanying worship. They're holding a harp. But the bowls of the prayers, what are those? They were holding the bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So you have the connection between the prayers and the incense. Prayers and incense. Think about this. In, in the Bible, what do we say? What do we heard that prayers do? They ascend before the Father, and they're, they are a sweet-smelling savor to Him. And the incense is ascends to the Father and our sweet-smelling incense aroma to Him. And so prayers and incense are connected here. Have you ever thought about your prayers as being something that is a sweet-smelling aroma to God? Well, the prayers and the incense in heaven are mixed or intertwined. But why are the bowls said to contain the prayers of the saints? That sounds awful Catholic-y, doesn't it? 
Don't the Catholics believe that you have to pray to a saint who then will deliver your prayer to God? The Jews used to believe you prayed and then an angel would take it and deliver it to God. But then we're told in 1 Timothy 2.5 that there's only one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus. And he is the mediator and, and he is the one who intercedes for us. So what are these prayers of the saints? Well, they appear to be unanswered prayers. What, what, do you, what do you mean unanswered prayers? Most theologians agree here that whenever Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that those prayers had not been fulfilled yet because earth is not totally like heaven. Because what we're going to see unfolding starting in chapter 6 is earth being judged so that it can become more like heaven. And so it appears to be the unanswered prayers of where all the times we prayed, God may May your will, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And now those prayers are going to be answered. And they seem to be unanswered, the prayers that have been prayed all this time that they're holding. Verse 9, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Wait a minute. It says in verse 9, they sang a new song in heaven. I thought we were going to sing the old hymns of the faith. I thought we were going to sing Amazing Grace, and I like hymns, Pastor. I don't like new songs. Well, they have a new song to sing up there. The word new there, Canaan, it means fresh. It means distinct. It means not recent. It means excellent. It means valued. New praise for a new deliverance is what it means. And they said, worthy are you. Notice that, worthy are you to the praise of the Lamb. Here's what I find interesting. Who received this letter first? Persecuted believers in the Roman Empire. Here's what I find interesting. It is documented in historical books that whenever the Roman emperor would enter into a city or a village or wherever he went, that they would always greet him with Worthy are you, emperor, worthy are you to receive our glory and praise and honor. And it was even used in the, spoken in the, used in the Latin, very dignus, very dignus. Worthy are you. And that's the words that came out of the angels' mouths. That would be so encouraging to those persecuted believers in Rome in the first century. We have not said, worthy are you, emperor. But I see a vision of heaven where we're saying, worthy are you to Jesus. And that's how they started. And then look at verse 11. We'll move on. And then I looked. I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders and the voices of many angels 
numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. So, in other words, whenever you put the multiplication to that in the original language, it just means you, whenever you wanted to say infinity, you kept adding plurals. So they just kept adding plurals. So they saw these angelic beings and elders as far as you can see. You can't count millions upon millions upon millions of creatures all worshiping the throne. And listen, worshiping Jesus, verse 12, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Let me stop there for a second. Something's really significant here. Notice what they were saying. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. But notice, he, they, he, then they say, seven attributes. Power, glory, power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, blessing. Perfect number. Number seven, perfection. But, but there's more to it. This is what's called a proleptic looking into the future. A time when every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. But the, but the syntax, I don't want to get too far into the weeds here, but something really interesting. This is called a polysyndeton. The Greek syntax. What does that mean? That means whenever you put the word and in between all seven characteristics, notice it just doesn't say power, comma, wealth, comma, wisdom, comma. It says power, chi, which is the word and. Wealth, chi. Wisdom, chi, the Greek word for and. Whenever you do that, the polysyneton, it's called Sharp's Rule of the Article, but what it means is every one of those is in its fullness exhaustive to perfection. So the praise says, Jesus, worthy is the Lamb. You have power, not just some, but all of it. And you have wealth, not just some, but all of it. And you have wisdom, not just some. You have all of it, exhaustively yours. And might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. Whew, what powerful praise. So when you read it in the original language, you get a feel for how powerful those the praise was from the lips of those in heaven it's going to be pretty cool whenever your lips and my lips are the ones saying this in heaven isn't it verse 13 and i heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the lamb on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and in hell saying this. What's hell going to be like? Praising Jesus. You ever thought about that? What about your buddies? Oh, I don't want to go to heaven. Praise Jesus forever. That's boring. Okay, praise Jesus in hell then. You're going to praise Jesus. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. And it will say to you, Jesus, who sits on the throne and the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. 
and you're going to praise this forever wherever you are. And the elders, four living creatures rather, said, Amen! And the elders fell down and worshipped. Wow. Powerful look. All of this worship shows me one thing. Jesus is God. Let me say that again. Jesus is God. A lot of people say, oh, no, no, Jesus never claimed to be God. He's the Son of God. Mormons say that. Jehovah Witnesses say that. A lot, of faith, a lot of faith systems. Jesus never claimed to be God. He's the Son of God. He's not God. Wait a minute. If he's not God, idolatry is going on in heaven. Right? Idolatry is going on. In, they're worshiping him as God. She so says, show me a verse. I had a Mormon one time. Show me a verse in the Bible that ever says Jesus is God. Here's one. Because they're worshiping the Lamb. And if He's not God, idolatry is taking place. Jesus is God. And He is worshiped as God. Among the myriads upon myriads upon thousands of voices crying out, You are worthy. We close with this. William Barclay said, Praise is the one gift that we who have nothing to give can give the one who has everything. Think about that. Praise. Praise is the one thing you have you can give to God who has everything. And we have nothing. Praise. So praise God here. You're going to be doing a lot of it in heaven. I love chapter 5. Beautiful picture of the Lamb. who, Starting in chapter 6 next Wednesday night. Opens the scroll. And when he opens it. Judgment on the earth begins to happen. So starting next Wednesday night. Chapter 6 through chapter 18. The next several Wednesdays. We're going to look at what's in these seven scrolls. Seven seals. He'll, undo, he'll un, break one, open it, and we're going to see what happens. But, but all seven are judgments upon the earth. It starts to get really kind of interesting and fun. been fun so far. It's going to be really fun starting next Wednesday because we're going to see what does that judgment on the earth look like. We've got about a minute or so for questions or comments if you have any. Anybody? Microphone's here so people can hear. Yes. I have one question that goes sure. back to when you're talking about the methods of interpretation. Yes. And uh -huh. you said the Jews believe Revelation. Uh, you mean present day Jews believe the Depends New on good question. Depends on which Jews. Uh, depend, I mean, you have all, you have the Orthodox, you have uh, the other kind of Messianic Jews, and all that. But in general, there, there is a one interpretation, not by all Jews, one interpretation by some Jews that believe that Revelation does apply. It's not just a, some don't go by the New Testament at all. But some do believe, though, that, not, I'm not saying not all, but there are some that do believe it's interpretation that it's, the book is valid, but it's only for the Jewish people, not for, not for Christians, for Jewish people. And it will, be, it will be fulfilled one day for all the Jewish people. 
Thank you. All right. Any, one more? Any questions or comments? All right. All right. Well, we'll wrap up there. Appreciate you coming tonight. And next Wednesday night, we'll start getting into Revelation chapter 6. Let's pray. Father, we want to praise you tonight for Jesus, the Lamb who was slain. And Lord, I just pray that our praise will ascend just as and, and join the chorus that's happening in heaven tonight, praising the Lamb for him being the only one worthy to open the scroll and to take the scroll and open the seals. So Lord, may we continue to live this week a life of praise to you, the one who secured our salvation. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God bless you. See you Sunday.